That Gospel Kids bit felt a bit Christmassy. It's the 29th of November, they're not allowed to do that. Uh, it's not December yet. We, uh, gosh, we adjust our stands wrong. Uh, <laughs> we love Christmas here at Gospel Church. Um, and, and seriously, if you get your head around it, you can't help but love it. Uh, the, the truth of the incarnation, the truth that the great big God of everything, the creator of everything comes down humbly as a baby, uh, gets born and is laid in a, a, a trough full of straw in a shed and he does it for us. It's, it's, it's breathtaking. It, it never ceases to get deeper and more incredible. This isn't part of my sermon. I just, I loved watching that and hearing those questions. Uh, I don't know about you. Um, I might pray for us, and then we're going to jump into God's Word today. Jesus, uh, we pray that you'd speak to us by your Spirit today, uh, that you'd be working faith in our hearts, um, whether we are someone who has already believed in you, or whether we are someone who has never believed in you, we ask that you would be working faith in us, Lord. We know that as Christians, faith is what we need more of. Uh, the whole Christian life is, is a growing in faith. And so, Lord, we ask that you would build our view of you today and come lead us to trust you more by the power of your spirit and your gospel. Amen. Um, we're talking today about a narrow door that leads to a broad kingdom. Uh, and, and at the start of our passage today, Jesus makes a, a shocking exclusion. Um, and before we look at exactly what that was, I want to ask, has anyone here ever felt shockingly excluded from the people around them. Um, it's a fairly common human experience. Um, you weren't kidding about the silhouettes, Rick. That, that, that light's powerful. Um, yeah, I, I, when I was thinking about this, I thought of a moment in my life when I felt very excluded from the people around me. And to be honest, it was more excluded by my own actions. We seem to be in a series of opening anecdotes that involve John being embarrassed, by the way, at the moment, uh, just, just so you know. Um, I went to a, a Bible college called uh, BST, the Brisbane School of Theology. Uh, it's in Brisbane, as you might have guessed. Uh, studied there for, for three years um, to do my Master of Divinity. Uh, but at, at BST, every year, um, they do what they call an end-of-year dinner. Uh, it's, a, it's an event where they uh, will celebrate all that God's been doing in the college for the year before. And, you know, they'll... they'll welcome new members of staff and they'll celebrate how God's been helping the students. And, and it's great. It was great. It was a wonderful time every single year, uh, excluding possibly the first year for me. Uh, so, so at the BST end of year dinner, they have a theme. Uh, usually the, the student committee, which I was never on, thank heavens, uh, has, chooses a theme for the end of year dinner. Um, I was very new to the college. I'd only started uh, six months before the dinner. I started mid-year. Uh, and, and, and then studied until mid-year in my last year. Um, and so uh, I, I, I didn't know a lot about this whole end-of-year dinner thing. I'd never been to one before. And that year they chose the theme of, of Greek. Um, now, now, Greek is the, the language of the New Testament, uh, originally written. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was appropriate. Um, and, and I decided on what was already a fairly risky manoeuvre. Uh, I was going to dress up as though I had misunderstood the theme of the night and I was going to dress as Greece, the movie. Um, 
and, and, and when everyone else was dressed as Greek in their togas, I'd go, oh, Greek, and it would be hilarious, and everyone would laugh, it would be great, we have a good time. Um, it, was, it was great, except for the fact that it wasn't that kind of theme party. Um, it was the sort of theme party where they have a theme like they put Greek letters on the walls, uh, and there's a, a little Greek-related skit, but aside from that, everyone is dressed in neat semi-formal. Uh, and I was in an inside-out white shirt, a leather jacket, and had my hair slicked. Uh, <laughs> um, it didn't go well, uh, and, and, and I felt suddenly, shockingly excluded. The moment I walked in, really, uh, when I walked in and everyone was in their, you know, tie or, or, or neat button-up shirt and long pants, and, and, and there was me going, hey, at people. Um, and it was, yeah, yeah, you can imagine, I felt excluded, not by them, they were lovely, of course, beautiful bunch of people, by my own foolish actions, I felt excluded. Uh, now, <laughs> we're in Luke 13 today, and like I said, this passage starts with a shocking exclusion. Uh, Jesus actually makes a startling exclusion at the beginning of this passage. Uh, we're going to start here in verse 22. If you haven't already, uh, whip it open uh, in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a stack of them at the back there. You are welcome to grab one. There is one large print left, if that's something you need. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take one of them, by the way. Uh, but but uh, this exclusion comes right at the beginning of our passage. Uh, but before we get to that, I, I actually want to kind of just jarringly break my sermon here and point something out that's not the main point of this passage that I really could have left out, uh, but I think is actually important enough for us to say. Uh, I'm delighted to be the pastor of a country church, uh, a, a rural church. Basically, since I started to feel the call to pastoral ministry uh, back in, or would have been nearly a decade ago now, actually, uh, I and, and Crystal with me, um, we have felt that we would end up in country ministry. So this is kind of where, this is the goalposts for us. Um, not, that, not that we feel like we're there, we can relax, we can become complacent. That's not what I'm saying. But the country church is always where God's led us. Um, uh, obviously, eventually, um, God led us not just to pastor a country church, to, to plant a country church. Um, but... But it can be really easy for us in the country uh, to feel like what happens here isn't all that significant. I don't know if you've run into that in your own heart. Uh, like there's the big things and they're happening in the city, but it's not that big what's happening here. Minlison is, after all, just a town of 800 people. York Peninsula is a 150-kilometre 150 150 strip of land with only 11,000 people on it. I was chatting to a pastor in Adelaide a while back who kind of his, his catchment area, his suburb, really, in Adelaide has about 40,000 people in it. And, you know, that would be, what, one or two square kilometres? Uh, <laughs> And, and we have 150 k's of land, 11,000 people, not including the Copper Triangle, by the way. It's easy for us to feel that what happens here is insignificant, even that God doesn't really care. Uh, we probably wouldn't say it in so many words, but, but we can sometimes feel it that God doesn't care that much about what happens here. This is the training wheels. This is the small stuff. You know, it's not the end of the world if everything doesn't work out. Uh, and, and the world doesn't do anything to help us with this perspective. Uh, everyone knows that politicians focus on where? Minlison? Brentwood? Adelaide, right? Or the city. Uh, they, 
the politicians, the services, basically everything focuses on where all of the major population centres are. Uh, and let's be honest, even the church at large hasn't done a great deal to help with this. Um, there are the significant influential Christian leaders, uh, ones that I love actually uh, in, in a lot of ways, uh, who, who have argued from scripture that the church should focus on the major population centres and, you know, the effects will trickle down to the country eventually. We'll get something good out of it. So if you're a, a church leader, what that means for you is, well, you need to be a city church leader if you're going to be a significant church leader. And there are a surprising number of pastors, you know, who I've run into or pastoral students working towards pastoral ministry who, who really feel called to the city. Often, often the city near the coast is what I find. Um, and, and, and not many at all who feel called to pastor a church in a small country town. Um, but we should, we should pay attention to the ministry of Jesus when we run into these sorts of things. Uh, it, he challenges both the church's view of the country and our own view of the significance of what happens here at Gospel Church and in country churches in general. Um, our passage today opens with these words. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Now, on, on the one hand, uh, Luke puts this remark in here to remind us of where Jesus is going. You know, this is the travel narrative. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. He's, he's heading towards Jerusalem for the cross. But at the same time, it tells us where he decided to focus his attention on his way there. And what it tells us is that he went to the small places. It doesn't say he went past the towns and the villages journeying towards Jerusalem. No, he went through them, entered them, teaching there as he journeyed towards Jerusalem. Now, now you might say, come on, John, this is a one-off comment. It, it, it's, it's probably just a fluke. Do you really think Jesus did a lot of ministry in the country just because of one comment? And that might actually be valid were it not for the fact that this is one of about eight times in Luke's gospel that he specifically says that Jesus went to the villages. He went to the small places. Uh, Luke goes to pains to point this out to us um, by repeatedly saying um, in, these, in these little side comments that come in, in bigger narratives that Jesus went to the villages, Jesus went to the towns. He didn't just focus on the cities. Uh, some of the quite powerful moments of Jesus' ministry broadly uh, across the Gospels happen in the country. Um, this isn't my sermon today, I'm sorry, but uh, Jesus meeting with Mary and Martha, where does it happen? It specifies it happens in a village. Healing the ten lepers, raising Lazarus from the dead. Anyone heard of that one? Happens in a village. Uh, probably most significantly in Luke, the first appearance of Jesus after he's resurrected happens on the road outside of town. And then at, when he is revealed to his disciples, he's in Emmaus, which is a town small enough that we actually have no idea what town it actually was or where it was because it's not significant enough to have survived history, at least not under that name. Now, this isn't just the, the limitless gospel because Jesus saved tax collectors, Samaritans, fishermen, prostitutes and all kinds of other people. He did do that. Uh, Luke's gospel also pushes the limit that, we, that many would place between the city and the country. When God himself came down as a man, he went to the towns and the villages to teach the gospel. 
not just the major centres. Country Christians, we need to hear this. God puts weight in what happens in the country, in the towns and the villages, in country churches. God incarnate spent uh, a lot of the precious, limited time between the beginning of his ministry and his ascension, you know, three or four years. And he spends most of it rurally. To be clear, this doesn't mean that God doesn't care about the city. I'm not saying that. We're not making it into a fistfight here. Uh, This means that a biblical Jesus-shaped answer to the question, does the gospel call Christians mainly to to ministry in the city or the country, is yes, he does. Um, And having done my little aside thing, we're actually going to jump into what is main in this passage. I'm sorry, rant over. Um, Not the main point of the passage, just important for us to know. Uh, Now, what happens in our passage today would have been deeply, deeply confronting to the Jews of Jesus' day that surrounded him. Uh, You see, Jesus is uh, asked about uh, whether many will be saved. And and, and we have to understand the cultural moment that that question is asked into. Uh, The Jewish person asking the question would almost definitely have approached it from a viewpoint of assumption. Assumption that really the Jews are saved... Will there be many others, Jesus? Um, Of course the Jews are saved. Unless you've gone and become a tax collector, you're a saved person because you're a Jewish person. You're part of the covenant community already. That's beyond question. You're descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You had the prophet sent to you, so you're saved. Uh, So when he says, will those who are saved uh, be few? He's saying, will those who are saved apart from the Jews be few? And what we'll see is that Jesus answers him first with this shocking exclusion. Read this with me. Jesus says, strive to enter, this is verse 24, by the way, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Two sides to what Jesus says here. Uh, The positive side is that he says that there is a way into the kingdom. There is a narrow door of entrance by which a person may be saved. But the other side is that Jesus makes it clear, everyone but everyone at all is outside of the door as the default position. Jews, Gentiles, that means basically everyone who's not a Jew, uh, men, women, children, Everyone, everyone is outside of the kingdom of God and therefore the default position of everyone is outside of salvation. This would have been really, really confronting, do you see, for the people listening? Especially the words that Jesus says the master will speak. Did you hear what he says there? So he explains the narrow door thing a bit further and says that the door won't be open forever. Uh, There's a way into God's 
kingdom, but the day was coming when the door would be closed. And what is clearly in view there is a future day of judgment, whether at the return of Jesus or at the time of a person's death, uh, they will be faced with a closed door. The option won't be open anymore. But notice that the exact words that the master says. He says, didn't these, do these strike you as odd? These struck me as odd when I was reading this. He says, I do not know where you come from. You know, in other comparable passages, he says, uh, I, I never knew you. But here he says, I don't know where you come from. Twice, actually, he says it. Luke reinforces it for us by noting down that Jesus repeated himself. How confronting would that have been for a Jew at the time? Asking this question. The Jews saw themselves as the covenant community, the, the already saved who the Messiah would come and bring to power in the world. Uh, this was the popular view. And a big part of that was that there were, uh, they were the people of God and they were the people of the promised land, which demonstrated that they were the people of God. That was the evidence, right? But Jesus says that that doesn't make a difference. You can be from the physical land of Israel and not be of the kingdom of God. In fact, he says that they will see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom. You know, the ones that they would have looked to and said, you know, these are the guys who demonstrate that I'm in the kingdom because I'm descended from them, right? But they themselves would be excluded, Jesus says. You see, the core issue here is that the Jews were complacent because they thought that by land and by lineage they were in. Because they were in the right place and descended from the right people, they didn't need to be saved because they were already God's saved people. He'd already called them out. But Jesus rattles that complacency. He says, no, there is a narrow door and you're failing to enter by it at the moment. And before we go on, it's worth saying, it's not just them. If you think I'm being a little bit harsh on the Jews. There are many, many ways in which we, here in the 21st century uh, Australia, we can share their complacency in slightly different ways, but with the same heart behind it. Let me give you two examples. Don't touch the guitar, Charlie. Two examples of how this complacency toward God and his kingdom might work out in, in our lives today. First, there's the person who believes that because they are a good person, God will have no trouble accepting them. You know, this position usually comes with a short list of things. Things that I do or things that I haven't done uh, that mean that I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't kill. I don't cheat. I give to charity. I speak kindly to people most of the time. Uh, I'm, I'm a good person. I do not park in disabled spaces without a tag. I'm a good person. I let people through in the line at the shops. I'm a good person. You know, if they have less stuff than me, otherwise, <laughs> no. And just like the Jew, when we're in the position, uh, we, we assume that we are the good guys, you know, and that there are also the bad guys in the world, and we'd be surprised if they were ever saved. You know, like this guy who's saying, I think there'll be many who are saved. And, you know, it feels like there's not a lot of investment there. 
because he's like, well, we're already saved. Should we call more people in? I'm not sure if that's necessary, is it? Maybe I'm reading too much into that guy's words. But maybe we think it, you know? I'm a good person, not like the people who go to jail. Not like the, the, the corporate fat cat, right, who, who leeches off of the system and, and who, who makes himself rich from the poor. Not like politicians, you know, who work dishonestly for their own gain. I'm a good person, not like a person who lives off of Centrelink. <laughs> uh, no, but the problem is that only holds up as long as you go by your standard and as long as you regularly turn a blind eye to yourself. Because it turns out we even break our own standards usually. I don't lie, steal, or steal or kill. All right, um, maybe I lie a bit. You know, if you push that question, usually a person has lied, but they like. But I don't do it every day. I don't do it every hour, at the very least, except for this hour just now. Uh, <laughs> all right, I, I stole that once, but that was a long time ago. That's different. It's not like I've stolen a car. You have to change the bar a bit there. I get really angry at people sometimes, and I get mean sometimes, and I gossip sometimes, but the rest of the time, I'm really good, actually. You know, imagine, imagine applying that kind of logic in a criminal court, right? I only kill people sometimes, Your Honour. Uh, most, most of the time, I'm not killing people. 99% of the time, I'm not killing people. 1%, you can't send a man to jail for 1%. That's crazy talk, Your Honour. You know, perhaps the big problem here is that God's standard of good and bad are not the same as yours, as mine, as ours. Uh, Jesus says, none are good but God alone, elsewhere. Jesus says over in Matthew 5, uh, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. God's standards are different to my standards. He says, looking on a, a woman in lust in your heart puts you in the same position of judgment from God's perspective as someone who has cheated on their spouse. Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So to the person who sits in the complacency of I'm a good person, Jesus says the same thing that he said to this Jew. There is a narrow door and you're on the outside. Strive to enter. Another form of complacency that might be uh, relatable takes the form of I'm good with God. Uh, I'm one of God's people. Why? Why am I one of God's people? Because look, I go to church. Weekly. Most weeks. I take communion, you know, body and blood saves me. Boom, I've been baptised. I say the right words, talk a lot about Jesus, sing the right words on a Sunday. But to that person, Jesus could just as well give the same answer. You're on the outside. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Not to say that everyone who goes to church is on the outside. <laughs> But there's only one way to God. There's only one narrow door to be saved. And the Bible is clear the narrow door is uh, what we call relational faith in Jesus. I say relational faith not because it's different to the faith that we usually talk about, 
a special kind of faith, but because we often misunderstand what faith is. Uh, we think of it as an airy, religious kind of thing, or as a mental assent to a few facts. Uh, but true faith is trusting relationship with the Saviour. Jesus says in, in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the narrow door that we must trust in. He says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Note that it's not that they agree with you, it's that they know you. So to anyone who trusts in anything else, who sits complacently trusting that their own goodness or religiousness or family lineage or anything else will save them, the message is the same. The door is narrow. Strive to enter. Trust in Jesus. Come to know him. Be saved. And, and having given the, the shocking exclusion, the everyone's on the outside, uh, wake-up call to complacency, Jesus now turns and he makes an astounding inclusion. You know, having shown how narrow the entrance is to the kingdom, that it is solely by faith in Jesus, he now shows how broad the kingdom is that that narrow entrance leads to. Jesus says from verse 29, And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are some, uh, sorry, behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. At, at this point in the exchange, Jesus has already shocked his uh, Jewish audience. He said that they are on the outer and need to enter in. Astounding stuff for them. But if Jesus could have said one thing that would have been more shocking, then it would have been this. To these people who had assumed that they, the Jews, because they were the Jews, because they were descended from Abraham, they were already a part of the kingdom, and who assumed that the Gentiles were basically God's enemies that he would crush to bring them to power, Jesus says, God's going to bring his people from everywhere and everyone. There won't be a point of the compass that people don't come from to be a part of God's kingdom. The point is that because lineage, heritage, good works, church attendance, and everything else can't save you, and because there's only one way to be saved, that is by faith in Jesus, by the narrow door, the playing field is utterly level. Anyone can be saved. Jesus even says, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. What he's saying is that those we least expect will be the ones packing out the kingdom of God. Yeah. There's this great reversal of assumptions and expectations because Jesus is turning the world upside down in this statement. He's, he's breaking the limits of society and turning it on its head. And this is the, the reality of the last being first, is, is what we see working out in the Bible, isn't it? Je just look at what we've seen so far in Luke. Look at the, the breadth of the people that are following Jesus, who have been called into the kingdom so far, who have faith in him. Prostitutes have faith. Samaritans find faith. Demon-possessed people come to faith. Lepers come to faith. Poor people come to faith. Fishermen find faith. 
tax collectors find faith, disabled people find faith, just last week actually. Jeez, uh, ju- just to name a few, right? Like, like Jesus is calling all sorts of people into his kingdom that, that would have been an assumed exclusion in the day. These are the people who are entering by the narrow door. And just when we think, oh, okay, so it's basically, it's basically just the least and the lowest that will be saved, we get to the book of Acts, right? Uh, and it, which is kind of Gospel of Luke part two, written by the same author. And Paul, a respectable, well-educated Pharisee who's persecuting the church, is floored by Jesus. He encounters Jesus and he comes to faith. And it's only faith that saves. And he goes around spreading the gospel, right? He gets turned around. But it's only faith that saves. And through the ministry of Paul, men, women, persecutors, religious people, pagans, all sorts of people are saved by faith. And and it's still the case today. The narrow door is open to everyone. Perhaps you're not uh, in the complacency that I mentioned earlier. Perhaps you're one who has said that if you went to church, the roof would cave in. There's those sorts of people. I've run into that a bit. The narrow door is for you. You might be listening to this from home because you didn't want to come into a church today. Trust in Jesus and be welcomed warts and all. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus. You can believe today. And church, we need to go on hearing this. The kingdom is for all. Let Let that affect who you're ready to hang around with, right? If you ever find yourself thinking, that person is too far gone, I should focus on the much more likely person over here who's going to come to faith because they're lovely and nice and they seem more Christian to start with. Give yourself a hearty brain slap and think this instead. Many who are last will be first. Jesus came to save sinners, to save failures, to save proud people, to save broken people to save all kinds of people no one is beyond his reach so at the end of our passage Jesus gives uh, an invitation a Pharisee runs up It's, it's, it's a bit of an odd invitation a Pharisee runs up and tells Jesus Herod's out to get him and he'd better skedaddle run uh, we, we know by now that the Pharisees were not the friends of Jesus. We've run into that a bit. They've been plotting a little bit in, in open, actually. Uh, so we can read into this the fact that the Pharisees and probably Herod with them are trying to scare Jesus off, right? But Jesus responds that he isn't going anywhere. He'll continue doing the work that he's come to do. He hands over his itinerary, which is a curious thing to give to someone who's like, he's coming to kill you, kill you. And he's like, here's where I'm going to be. God's still going to work out his plan. It's pretty bold. Uh, And more than just not being scared off, he's going to go to Jerusalem. He makes it clear he's going to die there. He's not afraid to die. He tells them that he's going to the city that killed the prophets. The implication is that it is there that he will die. Once again, we see that Jesus is set to go. He's set to go and do the work that will bring salvation to you and to me, to those who have faith. He will go to the cross and nothing can scare him off. But then Jesus says these words. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children 
together. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's funny, Jesus combines lament and invitation here. He laments over Jerusalem, and he expresses his earnest desire to care for the people of the city. And this this doesn't just go for them. Jesus loves his people from every nation, from every point of the compass, from every level of society, and he calls us to be willing to be cared for by him. Notice the only thing that's held Jerusalem back, you weren't willing. Willingly come to him is the call. And he says there, I I would have gathered as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. It's such a, a tender, caring picture, isn't it? That's what Jesus longs to do for his people, to care for us. It almost feels a little bit demeaning to God, that doesn't it? That, to compare him to a chicken. Um, and yet, Jesus says, I would have cared for you in this way, in the, in the care of a, a mother chook for her chicks. You know, the point is clear for anyone. Don't resist. Don't hold back from Jesus. Trust in him. And enter his care. Enter the kingdom of God and you will have life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, administer your word to our hearts like a balm. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not found saving faith, who may be sitting in complacency, who may have thought that sitting in church my whole life is what makes me right with God, who may have thought that because I do the right things, I am right with God, but has realised today that, that that relationship, that faith, that relational faith is not there. I pray that you would stir it by the power of your spirit in the heart right now. Pray for anyone who has been afraid of churches because the roof might cave in, because I'm too bad for God. I pray that you would reveal, Lord, that no one is beyond you. No one is outside of your reach. The roof didn't cave in, but the heavens were sent down. Jesus came to save you. So, Lord, we pray that that person would be saved. And we pray for us, Lord. We can so often fall into that false perspective, that that un-Jesus-like view that the first will be first and the last will be last. That the good, lovely, kind people will be saved. They're worth reaching. But the broken, drunk, poor, sinful, angry proud, arrogant. They're not worth bothering with. And yet, Jesus, this is the shape of your kingdom and so this is the shape of your mission. You came to open a narrow door for everyone. Help us to see it that way too, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.